Well, thanks everybody uh, for joining us. This is the Flashpoint Podcast. I am your host, Owen Higgins. As always, uh, joining me today is Nikki McCann Ramirez, returning champion, uh, Media Matters uh, for America researcher and analyst. And we're going to talk about. It's going to be kind of like you know a, a pretty, you know, uh, free ranging discussion. Uh, but mostly what we're going to concentrate on here is Elon Musk uh, purchasing Twitter as he announced that he is going to do or like, you know, is, uh, Twitter is accepted. I guess uh, like a little bit of like news background for anybody who's not familiar is that Musk secured funding to it's like somewhere around like 43, 46 billion to purchase uh, the uh, the website Twitter, the social the social media website Twitter and um now that's, you know, now that's kind of moving and, you know, there've been a lot of, you know, kind of predictable right-wing figures have been celebrating this because they see, and I think rightly that, uh, Musk is a fellow traveler with their ideology. Um, and already we've started to see some content preference choices, uh, being made on the website. It looks like, you know, some of the speech restrictions on misgendering people may be starting to be relaxed a little bit. Uh, Musk himself has gone after moderators, uh, you know, uh, uh, content moderators on the site, as well as I think like one of the lawyers who is um, a new popular target of of the right wing. Um, and it's, it, you know, to me, it's actually kind of unclear whether or not he's going to buy it. it I think that it's possible that he's just, you know, trying to uh, pump up the price and and uh, kind of force through some changes uh, and then, you know, you know, kind of just enjoy being famous and, and having everybody talking about him for a while. And then I think it's quite possible that he may then just decide not to do it and pay off the one billion, uh, like, kind of. I don't know if I would even call it, like, a poison pill. It's just like there's just, like, a penalty. If it doesn't go through, whoever is the person who makes it not go through has to pay $1 billion. Uh, I think that it's likely that Musk has already made more than that just from juicing uh, the price of the stock because the $54 a share is, uh, is already, and I'm sorry if this is like getting a little too in the weeds, but um, is already like well above uh, what, what the stock should be trading at. So there's certainly uh, a, a lot of stuff going on and Musk is, you know, a famously uh, thin skinned individual who, uh, you know, doesn't, uh, enjoy people making fun of him on there, like our friend Ken Klippenstein, who, you know, has popularized uh, sharing pictures of Musk and uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, Jeffrey Epstein's former girlfriend. Um, you know, sharing that stuff online. You know, he doesn't he doesn't appreciate when people call him uh, stupid or unhelpful, like when he uh, labeled uh, this this guy a pedophile for you know objecting to Musk's. Kind of, you know, uh, haphazard uh, attempts to kind of insert himself into saving some miners or s s some hikers or something in the cave uh, in Chile a couple years ago, I think it was. Um, so this is, you know, this is the kind of guy that we're dealing with. Um, and now, you know, now he's moving to buy Twitter where a lot of his uh, critics are. Um, and just before, uh, have Nikki come on and kind of give her... Uh, you know, take on this, I just want to say that, you know, there is a new uh, report out from Ben Collins on NBC 
where we find out now that uh, 200,000 users, uh, organic users, uh, left in the days after uh, Musk announcing that he was going to be uh, presumably taking over the company, and 90,000 users join. And if you look at you know who lost the who who lost followers and who gained them, it's very obvious that you know apolitical slash liberal left leaning people left and right wing people joined. Um, and that seems to be what Musk wants. So uh, let's talk about why. Uh, so Nikki, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Um, you know, looking forward to your kind of interpretation of, of, of what I just said and, and, and where you think this is kind of going. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Owen. It's always a pleasure. Oh my gosh, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, primarily that in my gut, I don't feel that Elon particularly thought this through. Um, just for like full transparency, I am on the side that believes the purchase will go through. I think there's like a slim chance he backs out of it. And I think if we want to talk about uh, Twitter's relationship with China and how that relates to Tesla's relationship with China, that's an interesting kind of sidebar discussion. But I think the biggest thing for me is that this is a purchase fundamentally rooted in a lot of narcissism by a man who I think was annoyed at the way Twitter sometimes functions, which I think a lot of users are, but whose ultimate solutions to the proposed problems are just going to exacerbate the problems themselves. I think a lot of people forget or kind of understand in like the ether that social media companies were not designed to necessarily be informative. They were designed for engagement and sharing and companies have always struggled with how to find ways to curb the spread of misinformation and abuse on platforms and just ignoring exploitative behavior from users and Twitter being a very powerful platform when it comes to information sharing is a, the platform that's most adept and most useful for the real-time distribution of information, which is why it's so favored by media types, politicians, celebrities, entrepreneurs like Musk. And they themselves have faced a lot of pressure and have invested a lot of manpower and energy into strengthening their content policies in order to curb abuse and exploitation on the platform. And I think it's important to remember here that Musk himself has a history of getting into both like legal and financial trouble for his use of Twitter, uh, he was once sued by the SEC and had to step down from his position as CEO of Tesla for three years um, after he falsely tweeted that he had secured funding to take Tesla private, caused the stock to go up and then unloaded a bunch of stock, made a bunch of money. The SEC sued him over it. And he also got in trouble after tweeting um, union bust, tweeting things that were considered union busting by the National Labor Board. So Musk has had a very contentious relationship with Twitter over time, and it just so happens that he has enough money to kind of wrestle his way in there and say, oh, I'm going to fix this. But we know from his behavior online and his use of Twitter that, I mean, it doesn't, his, his ability to fix this platform and his proposals for it just off the bat don't really indicate that it will make Twitter better for the average user. Or particularly different, right? Yeah. I mean, he, he, he's, he's, he's not really actually promising any massive change. Yeah, I think his biggest proposal is to, A, the whole, like, I'm going to bring back free speech to Twitter. Um, 
what Musk is conflating, and he basically said it is a, in a tweet, is that he wants to have Twitter have the same kind of content standards as the First Amendment, which the First Amendment is that the government shall not infringe on freedom of speech. The government already doesn't infringe on spe- with speech on Twitter. Twitter, as a private company, establishes its own rules. And what Musk is really referring to is that I think he's going to roll back some of the protections that Twitter has put into place to help its users who come from either a racial minority, an LGBTQ minority, or people who are, as we know, more susceptible to harassment on the platform. And rolling back those restrictions, maybe potentially because there's rumors about him bringing back people who have been banned before, are just going to really give Twitter kind of the same feeling as, I don't know, Gab or Parler. Right. And but that's even if he does. I mean, I think it's it, it, it is important, right, to like, uh, you know, there is a little bit of a difference between um, what he is saying kind of vaguely. Right. Um, and then what he is saying specifically. And uh, as far as free speech, uh, I, and I think this is, you know, an important point to make is that. Uh, he tweeted like shortly after this announcement was made and, you know, there's like this euphoria on the right over, you know, like uh, freedom of speech is coming back. And like he said that he is, uh, quote, against censorship that goes far beyond the law. And I think that last like little uh, four words are very important that goes like far beyond uh, the law. Um, and, you know, it is it is r- right there. Um that he is saying that he's he's even like open to censorship, but it's just the it's just the censorship that goes too far, right? Yeah, I think the biggest thing here is that there has been a long-standing claim that conservatives are unfairly censored on Twitter. And study after study has shown that this is not true at all. Uh, Conservatives have some of the highest levels of engagement across any social media platform, including Twitter, particularly on Facebook. Um, This has been a longstanding project by the right to kind of work the refs in their favor, to kind of argue that we are being unfairly censored, that we are being targeted, and therefore you should reconsider how you enforce your content strategies against us. And in reality, it's it's a problem that doesn't exist. The people who have been removed from Twitter or who face temporary bans, suspensions, are getting those bans because of violations of very specific rules that Twitter um, has put in. Ultimately, rolling back these rules and rolling back these kind of regulations aren't going to make Twitter a freer place, a place where speech is more you know, open and debate is more constructive. It's going to make Twitter a place where harassment is more prevalent, where the targeted abuse of account of minority accounts is going to be more prevalent. And it's going to give right wing actors, particularly those on the extremist extremist right who like to use Twitter and social media to push narratives and conspiracies and i think a really good example right now 
is the whole kind of sexual abuse groomer panic that's being fomented by the right. A lot of that isn't covered by Twitter's current restrictions. It's very difficult to get that sort of rhetoric removed off the platform. And if you make those restrictions that do exist non-existent, it's just going to be unchecked bullshit all over the platform. Can you uh, can can you talk specifically about like what it is that they are like like what it is about the terms of service that allows that stuff to get through? Sorry, Owen, could you repeat that? All right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about the um, the way that the content moderation does not address specifically? Uh, like this kind of discourse, like how how that stuff is able to kind of get through, uh, like the censors, as if as, 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 you know, as, in as much as there are like censors or any kind of controls, it sounds like there is a way that this stuff can kind of get through. How how does that work? Uh, the way a lot of these, this like speech that is technically banned by Twitter, can get through content moderators can kind of avoid the restrictions. There's a manner of ways to do it. The biggest one is to keep your claims non-specific as long as you're not targeting a specific individual or kind of just directly, you know, tweeting out the N word or saying that X group should die. Um, you'll probably get away with it. I think one of the dichotomies here is that the reason bigger accounts, um, accounts like Tucker Carlson and Charlie Kirk, who were previously suspended from Twitter for tweeting out uh, transphobic remarks against the transgender swimmer. I forget what state she swims out of, but they tweeted about her. Both of them got their accounts locked. And once Elon announced that he was buying Twitter, they deleted the tweets and were like, oh, we're back under new management. But the reason accounts like those tend to face more of the repercussions of the content policy is because they're accounts that re- are receiving more exposure. The bigger your account is, the more likely it is that someone is going to see your tweet, someone is going to like report it, or, you know, well, you, reporting is pretty much your only option there if you're actually trying to get something taken down from Twitter or trying to f- fight harassment on a more systemic level. But smaller accounts alt accounts, accounts that don't really contain a specific name or just kind of troll accounts can get away with a lot of this behavior because they're usually part of a larger group of people that are either targeting an individual or speaking out about an issue. And they are far less likely to be reported for breaking Twitter's content policies. And Twitter has actually tried to put in in place a lot of tools for individual users to kind of curb their own exposure to these smaller accounts, to this kind of more personal account level harassment. I know they've been putting in things to kind of remove your own tag from a tweet. If you were tagged in a tweet that's directing harassment toward your profile, you can remove yourself from the tag. If you don't want to see comments or replies, you can now like hide comments on your account. You can limit who can reply to your tweets, but these don't, replace a robust content policy that is consistently enforced. Another big problem is that most of Twitter's content moderation is done via software and not real people. Right, right. And and so then that just kind of like opens the door uh, for more abuse. Um, and but I think I think that it's important to note, too, that uh, 
a lot of, you know, like these, these big accounts may get reported, but, but they, what they're just trying to do is to get the attention and then to kind of direct the bots. Right. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that's, I think that's also just a structural problem with Twitter. I think the idea that Twitter is just this open town square where everyone has equal access to each other and the discourse is really level isn't necessarily true. The way Twitter's algorithms are set up is that you are seeing content that constantly reinforces what you engage with. And for a lot of users, that means, you know, if someone's getting quote unquote ratioed, by people you follow or people will like, you will see that tweet and it's easier for you. It's easy for you to kind of pile on. I think Musk either intentionally or just because he doesn't understand, doesn't, isn't aware or simply is choosing to ignore the way that Twitter actively functions. And you can see it in the accounts he's interacted with after announcing that A, he had acquired a controlling stake in Twitter and B, that he was buying the company, the majority of his replies and interactions and tweets at people, if you look at his tweets and replies, have been to prominent right-wing accounts that are kind of reinforcing his claim that he's going to bring free speech to the platform. It also says a lot about what how Elon Musk views himself and how he views his own entrance into Twitter. But the more he reinforces those reactions with right-wingers who are celebrating him, the more the algorithm is going to show him that content and the more he's going to believe that like people broadly support him. He also has like 80 something million followers. So it's a little bit different, but yeah. I mean, I mean, and not, and not to mention that, that he also like, this is, this is what he thinks free speech is, right? This is like, this is his interpretation of it. Oh yeah. Um, I think. Yeah, go ahead. His interpretation of free speech I think, again, he said it in the tweet where he thinks it Well, he calls himself a free speech absolutist. But I think to Elon Musk is free speech where he gets to make the rules. And we're seeing this simply from the fact that he bought out Twitter because he didn't like how he was running. He has the power to do that. But in reality, Elon Musk for a long time has been an opponent to free speech when it comes to his own employees, when it comes to unionization efforts at like Tesla plants, he has consistently shown that this attitude of, Oh, I'm a free speech absolutist is applied extremely selectively and doesn't have a lot of follow through. I really don't think that this is going to be Elon Musk's like lifelong project transforming Twitter. I think he's going to come in, try and make a lot of changes, realize that there are structural issues with the platform that require a lot more investment and restructuring and rewriting of algorithms that he doesn't necessarily want to be the one, you know, directing the day to day of, and it might just revert back. He might just come in make a couple of big changes and revert back to letting Twitter sort of run on its own. But by that point, he could have fundamentally changed the content policy so much that Twitter, again, becomes more like a gab or like one of these user users where the content standards have been rolled back so much that the user experience becomes unpleasant for the average user. Yeah, I mean, that does seem to be like one of his one of his major um, uh, uh, his major goals here. Um, I, I do kind of want to go back a little bit, though, to what you were saying earlier about how, you know, he got in trouble 
uh, for for using Twitter to juice Tesla stock, and he's you know he's in trouble for the way that he bought stock um, in Twitter in the first place when he got his like nine point four percent. It seems like he's just skirting a lot of these financial laws, and and you know he's he's getting hit with like fines that are are really nothing. Um, uh, you know, obviously this, this website, this social media website is something that he can use for a lot of different things. And, you know, as, as well as what we're discussing right now, uh, spreading his version of what he considers, you know, free speech and, and, um, and, and, you know, controlling the discourse to his, to his advantage, he can also use it for financial gain. And it doesn't really seem, um, to me that there's much that can be done about that. Um, which, which kind of brings up some problems of how, uh, how we even kind of control uh, billionaires controlling the media like this, because if we, if, if, you know, if, if they're allowed to just use it for profit like this, uh, then, then that's just like an even like in an, an, an yet another step forward for, uh, for their own gain. Right. Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the biggest things that Musk is going to realize if he goes through with this acquisition is that even though he's bought Twitter and he's taking all this advisement on what he should do from like big right-wing accounts, it still won't insulate him from the consequences of misusing the platform to either benefit or harm his own businesses. I think it's worth noting that when he announced this acquisition, Tesla stock dropped in value by about $125 billion. It still hasn't fully recovered. Um, But I think, A, the SEC lawsuit, when he falsely tweeted out that he had secured privatized investment for Tesla, is a big marker of how, no matter how much he controls Twitter, how involved he is in the platform, he is still subject to regulation in the corporate world outside of it. But also... And oh my God, I'm blanking out on the who wrote this. But I read an article recently that pointed out that Tesla manufactures a large percentage of its cars in China. And China got in a really big beef with Twitter during the Hong Kong protests because Twitter refused to censor content positively covering the protests or content that was coming out of Hong Kong about the protests. And It is very possible that Musk will at some point face a conundrum where China is asking Twitter to censor something and he could have to choose between, you know, acquiescing to the request of the Chinese government or risking having assets of Tesla seized. And I think that also makes and would make investors. Oh, yeah. And investors at Tesla would get very nervous about that. And I think I, I know all the tech stocks are a little down right now. But that is something that I think Musk is going to really have to consider in how he chooses if he chooses to go through with this acquisition, which we won't really know until like the late summer, I think, um, and how he's going to choose to run it. But I also think that there's Musk has indicated that he has a little bit of an idea about turning Twitter profitable here, which is something that many have tried to do with very little success. I don't like Mark Zuckerberg, but there's a a nice quote from him. I think it's something like Twitter is like if a bunch of clowns, if a clown car like crashed into a gold mine and just fell right into it. Um, Twitter hasn't been very, it's the least profitable of the social media companies. It doesn't really rely on ad revenue. It's mostly just relies on its um, stock value 
But I think one of the biggest things here is it is one of the most powerful social media websites when it comes to news, politics, and culture. And either making it a pay-for-play platform, I think he suggested recently that he was thinking of having websites paid in bed tweets or making it, I think at one point he said that Twitter should just be like a $10 month, $10 a month subscription. That's not going to drive more users to the platform, which is something that Twitter has for a long time struggled with. And I think all these kind of like one-off tweets, which Musk is used to doing when it comes to him being like, oh, I'm going to save the miners trapped in the cave or, oh, I'm going to do this thing. He's very used to doing that in the technology sphere, not so much in the tech social media sphere. And I don't think he's necessarily realized that that strategy may not work in the same way. Yeah, it could it it could backfire on him uh, uh, pretty badly. I wanted to I want to shift just a little bit um, and talk about a different billionaire, uh, Jeff Bezos, who. Um, so while over, over the last week, like as Musk has, you know, uh, been talking about purchasing um, the pur- uh, purchasing Twitter and uh, and and kind of like you know be, being invested in this idea that he has of what free speech is and how he's going to promote it, um, uh, it Bezos has started to kind of, I guess I guess like a good way to describe it was. Um, maybe like kind of grab onto the same perception of, uh, of free speech, this kind of conservative uh, perception of it that, that Musk has. And, and we're seeing that with, you know, he's starting to promote people like, you know, like right-wing pundits, like, like Barry Weiss and, and Glenn Greenwald among others. And, you know, talking about how like, you know, certain uh, articles that they're sharing are, are interesting. Um, and this guy obviously, you know, like owns the Washington Post and, you know, it is, is dealing with a union drive right now um, uh, that, that he uh, obviously does not care for. Um, so, uh, you know, what do you, what do you think that says? Do you think that we're going to be looking at like a fundamental shift at like the Washington Post too? Or do you think this is just, uh, just kind of a bunch of bored guys who are all at like kind of the same level of wealth, just kind of having this conversation on social media? Because every, everything that they do do, and everything that they do say to each other and to uh, to people like through their platforms online does drive the news to at least to an extent. And it does drive how people think about things. What do you what do you think Bezos is really up to here? Yeah. OK, so I don't think it's just Bezos. I think what Bezos, Musk and a lot of these like Silicon Valley billionaires are realizing is that there is a coming advent of, well, A, anti-billionaire, if you're talking about the left, anti-monopoly, antitrust wave of sentiment that's been brewing for a really long time. I think a lot of these billionaires have recognized that the stratification of income in the United States and the general kind of resentment of these people that can just come in, buy up everything, destroy small businesses, kind of follow their whims because they have enough money to do it, that they've kind of pushed the limits of it. And for the last couple years, there has been an ongoing kind of stalled out conversation in Congress about regulating the tech companies, 
regulating the monopolies, breaking up a lot of these big companies. And I think Bezos, Musk, Zuckerberg have all made concerted efforts to kind of shore up political support and shore up public support so that in the event that this legislation legislation is introduced, they can easily convert it over to a partisan battle where they don't have bipartisan support for regulating them. I think the whole we're bringing back free speech line really appeals to conservatives, particularly popular conservative pundits, who have for a long time been falsely arguing that conservatives are unfairly censored online. And I cannot stress enough that that is a myth. Conservative conservative content on social media does extremely well. It does well in legacy media. We see it still at the Wall Street Journal, at the Washington Post. There are a lot of legacy conservative writers, opinion art journalists, who are still prominent voices in the media. And appealing to this attack on free speech sentiment is a line that already exists within the Republican Party and allows the Silicon Valley billionaires to shore up support preemptively so in the event that they feel that they're being attacked, they can come back and make the argument, well, oh, I, Jeff Bezos, I, Elon Musk, I'm defending and protecting free speech, and if you start to regulate me, well, I have to give that up, or I might have to make concessions, or I might have to change such and such policy. So in my mind, it's a preemptive measure against the public backlash that is brewing against these companies. So you think that there's like a calculation to this is what you're saying? Like you think that they're like, they're making a calculation that, um, that if they can make this a partisan issue, that if they can make this, you know, an issue in the like quote unquote discourse that then, uh, they'll be able to, I guess, kind of slow down the legislation, slow down the political conversation to the point that basically nothing will happen. Yeah, I think, and I'm going to go back to to my best point of reference, which is Tucker Carlson, who purports himself to be this like class conscious, anti-monopolistic, anti-corporate overreach populist who for a long time criticized how things were run at Twitter. But as soon as Elon Musk, a billionaire who holds a lot of power simply with the amount of money and the economic power that he controls, says, I'm going to buy this platform and I'm going to restore free speech. Well, suddenly billionaires buying up corporations and amassing more of that power is okay because they're appealing to this sentiment that we've already been feeding our viewers. I think... Musk, I think it's a little bit less calculated. I'm still not entirely sure what his motives here are. But Bezos, I absolutely think it's calculated. I think his purchase of the Washington Post was a little calculated. And I think we've seen in the past this trend of billionaires coming to testify in Congress, kind of trying to tap the brakes on any effort to regulate them, to set higher standards for content moderation, set better requirements for how these companies should be operating. And I think for them, inserting themselves and making themselves a player in the narrative, they see that as a beneficial thing. They see that as a way 
to get the public on their side. Because as we know, Elon Musk has a huge fan base, a huge army of fans and sycophants who are going to say any move he makes is good. And if you can convince the public, if you can convince kind of the average viewer that Elon Musk is there to, you know, make Twitter more free and anyone who opposes that is a Stalinist, as Tucker said the other night, well, that's a really powerful political narrative. And I think these companies, these big Silicon Valley powerhouses are aware of that. Right. There, so, yeah, there, I mean, it, it is interesting to watch these, you know, hyper rich people, uh, you, you know, use use their platforms to kind of turn themselves into pundits, kind of turn themselves into influencers um, in a way that they don't really need to, um, you know, o- other than to try to drive the discourse, to try to drive the way that this stuff is being talked about. And I think this is kind of a good way to kind of segue into uh, the other thing that we wanted to chat about, uh, which is the rise of the new right uh, in the U.S. and kind of and they have a lot of connections uh, to the way that this stuff is uh, working and, and the way that, we're, you know, uh, we're talking about it um, uh, as, as we've been talking about Tucker and, and, and Barry Weiss and Greenwald. But there 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 are a lot of these guys um, and it is all kind of adding up to this right wing moment this right-wing movement. Uh, and yeah, it, you know, there's been a lot of reporting that's come out about, about uh, Peter Thiel's, um, this, uh, this Rockbridge cap or media or capital, something like that, that, that is uh, funding a lot of this stuff. There's uh, Curtis Yarvin who used to blog uh, under the name uh, Mencius Molbug, I think like a very, very far right uh, fascist uh, uh, a, a blogger who, you know, like ha- you know, through these events that J.D. Vance was at. Um, and it does seem like it's kind of starting to just merge into the more mainstream conservative movement in a way, like in an outward way that we haven't seen before. Um, what, what do you think about this? I know that you said that you, you were going to look at some of the reporting on this. I don't know. Uh, how do you kind of tie this to the media stuff that you look at and, and the social media stuff that we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the biggest thing, I like spent some time reading up on it, I know just because of the previous work I've done, a lot of the players that are being mentioned in this kind of like new right movement. And what I think people should understand about this is this kind of trend of identifying a cohort of, you know, up and coming conservatives who don't play by the rules and don't like the establishment is very cyclical. I think the best comparison and one that a lot of people will recognize would be the rise of the alt-right between like 2016, 2019, um, probably 2015 to 2019, there was another group of conservatives who were written about in, or far right, like far, we'll call them far right actors who were written about in much the same way. And that movement again, coincided with a really big monetary windfall. Um, in that case, it was a lot of money and backing by the Mercers. I think one of the Good examples is Milo Yiannopoulos, who was written about a lot at the time. Um, Richard Spencer, who many will remember, was called the Dapper Nazi. And what tends to happen is that, you know, a well-endowed family, a well-endowed backer will come in 
and kind of start providing funding for projects to these kind of up and coming right wing personalities who push against the establishment. And I think what tends to happen, particularly in conservative politics, is that like most other political movements, the establishment will once again pick and choose who it lets in and who it disavows. And inevitably, these people show their their true colors and kind of get pushed out of the movement. We saw it happen with Yiannopoulos. Um, I don't partic- I think Alex Jones predates the far right, but him and a couple a couple of the younger kind of personalities at Infowars also experienced the same thing. I think the Unite the Right movement was a pretty big shock to the system about the way we cover these like burgeoning movements and kind of being critical about and realistic about where they're actually going and what they're actually advocating for. I think Teal specifically, it's really interesting to me that in the articles that I was reading about the new right that have been published, it kind of, the, the, the people that were being written about were being very much represented as like this young cohort of new conservatives who weren't playing by the rules. And, um, it was interesting to me that, those people were put in the same bucket as like JD Vance and uh, what's the, and Blake Masters, who are these very, I don't want to call them corporate conservatives, but fall into this very same model of conservatives who are, you know, railing against this elite political and media culture while at the same time, again, accepting tens of millions in funding from elite political backers and kind of trying to fold themselves into this fringe anti-establishment narrative that ultimately seeks to put them into the establishment where they will face the checks of that system. I think a really good example, and if you've been paying attention to the news at all, what is Madison Cawthorn. Madison Cawthorn was kind of seen as this young fresh-faced new conservative who was in touch with what the next generation of the right wanted and kind of as soon as he stepped out of line made a mention of what the reality in DC was like where he said I think he said that he'd been to um, parties where conservatives were having orgies and doing a ton of drugs now the Republican Party is actively trying to tank him through a systemic series of kind of leaked scandals and Again, this is all cyclical. This new group, I think they're going to get a lot of coverage, which in my opinion is very rarely done right and is sometimes a little irresponsible. Um, They're going to get their coverage. They're going to be elevated. A lot of them will just become social media personalities. And eventually, hopefully, they will fall into kind of those same checks, be it from the left or the right once they reach a position where they're prominent enough that people are paying attention, that it the cycle kind of resets itself. I think this has been happening for decades. Also, a great example is Tucker Carlson, who was at one point called like the, fre- the fresh-faced bow-tied man of like a young man of conservatism. And we see it happen over and over again. And I think just because a couple articles have been written about it doesn't necessarily make it a coherent movement. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at on it right now. I want to see more about what these people are actually doing, because I think right now it's only been like three or four articles written about it.
But it is something to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, but but uh, as well, I mean, I think that it is fair to say that we have seen, you know, over over the past uh, few years, um, you know, and I know like you and I have been talking about this, uh, you know, f- for quite a while, um, this kind of rise of the right, specifically uh, within these spaces where they're talking about, you know, free speech, like all the stuff that we're talking about here. Uh, with Musk and Twitter and the people that, you know, Musk uh, and and Bezos, et cetera, are kind of attaching themselves to, uh, you know, there are these figures who they are kind of like funding and promoting or, you know, like, uh, well, uh, allegedly funding, um, uh, but certainly promoting, um, you know, Andreessen's another one of these tech guys. uh, And it it does seem like there is this kind of movement, like what this movement really wants, I think is kind of questionable. It's not even clear to me whether or not they want to take over the Republican Party or even be a part of it so much as they're interested in pushing forward an ideology, like a right wing ideology uh, that, you know, specifically is is using uh, kind of cynically, I think. Uh, you know, hatred against trans people, hatred against people of color uh, to kind of, you know, rally a lot of people on the right behind them and and to kind of remake uh, American democracy. And if that seems a little extreme to you, uh, you know, this is what people like Peter Thiel have said that they want, like they want a different political system. And so, uh, I, I mean, when you look at it in that context, do you see what I'm saying? Like, like that it's not quite like, like it's 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 less about the checks and of of like institutional power and more about just kind of reshaping the the uh, conservative movement ideologically. Oh, absolutely. I also think it's really important to point out that a lot of the key figures in these new, like new right alt right movements, are never really new. Um, Teal, in particular, and his kind of affiliation with Curtis Yarvin. Curtis Yarvin's blog started in two thousand seven. And he's known for a lot of things, but I think the thing he's known the most for is kind of his advocacy for what I think he calls it like neo-monarchy, which is basically a system where the government is run with like a national CEO. It's like a monarchy, but run like a tech startup. Um, and I, I, I kid you not, they use the word monarchy. So I'm not making this one up. It's, it's the word he uses. But I think that appeals a lot to people like Teal. And I think it's what a lot of the movement saw in Trump when Trump was elected. Like this guy has run businesses. He's going to run the company, the country like a businessman, not like a politician. And again, I agree. I totally agree with you that a lot of this movement is very cynical. I think particularly when it comes to movements that are linked to one financial backer, it's People who are buying into these narratives, buying into this kind of these attacks on LGBTQ people, people of color, this conservative worldview that is often informed by like completely um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just engineered moral panics. They're buying into that in exchange for the financial backing to receive notoriety. And it's extremely cynical because I don't think it's actually people who are looking to make fundamental changes that benefit the population. There are people acting in service of higher powers, of monetary powers that will ultimately preserve the status quo. Because Teal, what he's ultimately looking for 
is political power. It's why he's backing major Senate campaigns. It's why he's throwing all this money at kind of conservative upstarts. And it kind of goes back to our discussion that we were having a little earlier about why are all these tech CEOs doing this is because they do understand that there is a risk that the public turns against them, that there is an increasing desire for regulation of their activities. And having that political power, having that sway and the ability to give people enough campaign funds to ensure at least a couple of the people you're backing make it into government, that benefits them in the long run. And I think a lot of these movements will kind of pull in the smaller upstarts, the smaller personalities to give that movement the face of, um, you know, the face of disruption, like it's a new movement, it's something we're doing, but it's ultimately the core is still a group of people that are seeking to move themselves into the systems that already exist and move up through those systems for their own benefit. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I remember writing about this, uh, I think it was like last year. Um, it, it, I, I think that another part about this that's a little bit, been a little bit under discussed both, both here and, and in general is that um, like while there is a, a strong like right-wing ideology in how uh, in, in like the type of media uh, that is being promoted um, and, and the uh, like the type of people who these billionaires are pushing forward. uh, There's also like a desire just in general to disrupt the media uh, ecosystem to the extent that I think that, you know, some of, some of the uh, some of, some of the billionaires and some of the some of the people funding a lot of these movements, uh, like and then this is media, right? Um, are are also just kind of interested in disrupting and changing the ecosystem of media in general, and kind of weakening more institutional mainstream publications, uh, strengthening a kind of maybe more like anarchic, uh, less regulated almost. Like journalism, and and in that, I'm not saying that I'm not saying like government regulation. I'm saying like almost like less edited. Um, like Substack is a great example of this, right? Like uh, Substack, uh, you know, obviously gives like a lot of writers the opportunity to reach, you know, their audience like directly. Uh, but it also like there, there's no content moderation as far as like you know like you can write like Alex Berenson is on there, you know, like there like there are good people on there too, but there are people and, and they're not really like stepping in and, and, and taking control over that. And I'm not even saying necessarily that they should or they shouldn't, but there's this like idea that you kind of just want to change things up and shake it up. Um, and, you know, kind of one of my, one of my theories on this is that they are actually doing it because their end goal is to kind of, you know, dis- disrupt the kind of media that could possibly challenge them. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, I, I think there is like a, a bit of like this, libertarian ideology behind this that uh that isn't like necessarily the kind of right-wing uh ideology that we're talking about that is like a little bit more uh based in you know the kind of political tech movement that exists what do you think about that i mean do you think that that's a fair way to put it um because i i i am trying to be like as even-handed as possible here uh you know when we're when we're uh, you know, obviously, like you, you can't be inside somebody's head. So we're just trying to ascribe motivations just from what we're seeing. And I think that you could make an argument that part of this is kind of based on uh, 
a, a desire to to shake things up uh, in the media landscape that goes that that may have their own benefit as as kind of one of the goals, but I think there is kind of like an ideological uh, underpinning to it that that is actually like somewhat real, right? Oh, one hundred percent. I think like oh, well, first I'll start by saying that trust in sort of quote unquote establishment media is at an all time low and decreasing. I think most like it's pretty obvious that most Americans no longer get their news from traditional news sources like cable news, print publications. And this is something that we've seen across the board, not just in conservative media, but also in liberal media, particularly televised media, is that a lot of coverage has now shifted away from kind of that like news base, Walter Cronkite, traditional televised media toward really flashy opinion, editorialized coverage. And again, like I said earlier, social media, which is where most people are getting their news now, was not built to be a check on information. It was built for engagement and for sharing. And in a lot of cases to just drive ad revenue through data collection. So if there's no onerous on the social media companies to create internal tools to kind of regulate media, to regulate how information is shared, what kind of information is shared to provide kind of that like factual accuracy for its users, then that those checks are not going to happen because the way regulations are set up in the United States, like private companies kind of have the check to do whatever they want and it's on them to provide those content standards. So there is absolutely a movement to challenge not only established media ecosystems, but also the existing social media companies and their existing content regulations. I think we've seen it with the rise of alternative platforms to Twitter, alternative platforms to YouTube, like Rumble, which I also think got a, a pretty sizable backing from Teal. And there is an awareness by a lot of this, these like the like Silicon Valley ecos in the Silicon Valley ecosphere that you can create a platform where you create your own content standards and you decide what is what is a go and a no go on your platform. And there isn't, and right now the American public is in an environment where people are going to gravitate toward social media and social media alternatives that fit the con like kind of you pick your own content standards kind of situation. And I think that in itself comes with its problems. Um, I hate the whole like post, you know, like people used to say that we live in like a post truth era, but I think it's more that we live in an era where you can kind of decide what truths you want to see. And you can very easily immerse yourself in a reality that suits your worldview. And it's not a surprise that investors, entrepreneurs, billionaires, whatever, would invest in these opportunities, seize these opportunities, because we do kind of now live in an age where information is so available that you do kind of need to be able to shore up your own sort of public backing, your own public support when it comes to existing in an online space, when it comes to interacting in an online space. It's 
I think, harder for media companies now to exist isolated from public checks, from the idea of, like, social media as the public editor. And as far as I can tell, the reason a lot of these alternative platforms are being created is because of this desire for investors, for pundits, for the like alternative media as a whole to kind of sh- not only shake up the existing ecosystem, but also have the tools to create content strategies and environments that boost their own worldview, if that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I think, you know, you know, with our last couple of minutes here, I just want to kind of explore that a little bit more because I think that, you know, for people like, well, for people like who, who, who have, uh, you know, similar politics, like, like, uh, like we do, um, the, the question of, you know, whether or not, like, like you're talking about the news media, like back in the day, like, you know, Walter Cronkite, like, you know, print media, when there was like this, like, quote unquote, objectivity, which I think is like, really questionable, right? Like you could challenge uh, whether or not the media was objective back then, or whether or not it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, putting forward a certain perspective uh, without a lot of challenge, right? And then what's happened now is we've gotten away from that. And I think I think we would both definitely agree that, uh, you know, uh, uh, outlets like Fox, obviously, but also MSNBC and CNN are just really like toxic and, and and just bad, like they're just bad media. Like you don't get news from it. You just get an ideological point of view uh, that, you know, oftentimes uh, just kind of like mindlessly drones and drones and repeats the same thing over and over again. And it's just like pushing this idea into your head, um, whether or not it's true or not, it doesn't even matter. Like it's just about like getting that ideological point across. Um, so now we have a situation, right, with, with social media where where you have an opportunity to to change that and to open it up. And I agree with you that like the social media companies uh, were certainly not built for this, uh, you know, w- whether or not they're, they're meeting the moment uh, to, uh, for the, because I think part of what's going on too, is like there's all this user innovation that kind of goes back into the company, right? Like a company like Twitter was not built, uh, you know, as you're saying, as you know, to, to be like the uh, public square to be, uh, you know, the, the, like the main source of news for millions of people, but it is now, it is now, and it's adapted uh, both to like that reality and to the way that users have used it. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, the question for people on the left is, you know, if you're faced with uh, this situation where, you know, like like traditional news media has just turned into hot takes, uh, you know, like there there is some good print media still, uh, but, you know, like, like there's also like good criticisms of it that, that that exist, um, like where, like, like, what is the, what's the, what's the right approach to it? I think for, for people, like, like, how do you, how do you approach media? Because, uh, you know, you're, you're in this new world and like, like no amount of like wanting to go back to the way that things, uh, used to be is going to make that happen. So that's just like out of, that's just out of the question. So what's, what's, what's the, what's the realistic, like alternative solution? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? (laughs) Trust nothing, verify all. Um, I think the biggest thing here is, A, in my opinion, 
you should always be interacting with news sources that don't necessarily agree with your worldview. Um, it's hard to tell people exactly where to go for news. Um, like you said, there are still really good outlets out there that do really good, solid reporting. I think there are individuals out there. There are way more individuals out there than outlets. But I think the biggest thing, in my humble opinion, is... Hey, stop, stop getting most of your news from Twitter. It's bad for you. It's bad for everyone. But you have to kind of, A, approach everything with a healthy dose of skepticism. Um, you should be, I got in, I was on Univision like a couple days ago and I said something along the lines of you need to be looking for various sources to back up any claim that you're reading. I think one of the biggest things that has been lost in a lot of this kind of like hot take shuffle is a return to data. And there's really good data scientists out there and really good people who do a lot of analytics on kind of what things look like on the ground. And a lot of that goes back to local reporting. The death of local reporting, I think has also been one of the worst things for our media environment. It sort of the, the decay of your local news environment has created this disconnect where people are so embedded in like national discourse and international discourse, kind of the overarching narrative that it really disconnects people from the reality of what's happening around them from like the reporting that's in their community. And I think that's a fantastic start starting point. If you have access to local outlets, support your local outlets. I think for me, if we want to get shift a little back to the topic of content matter moderation, there is no perfect content moderation strategy. There is no perfect content standard rules or set of kind of content regulation principles. There are always going to be mistakes. There are always going to get be things that get caught in the net that shouldn't be caught in the net. There are always going to be things that get through the net that shouldn't flow through the net. But to Abandon the idea that companies have to create tools and principles that help their users navigate an environment that is kind of actively hostile to their ability to get act, like accurate, well-thought-out, well-sourced information. Abandoning that principle helps absolutely no one. I think... Like we were saying earlier, the idea that a lot of the investors, a lot of kind of the big companies and big personalities coming in and saying, oh, well, we're just going to reestablish free speech. That just opens the door. Well, when you have a content strategy that is no regulation or as little regulation as feasibly possible, you open those those floodgates to the intentional abuse of the average users, just inability to digest this gigantic flood of information that's coming at them all the time. I think there is so much going on in the news at any given point in time that it actively overwhelms the individual. And it's also very true that no individual user feasibly has the time or ability to go and fact check every single piece of information that they can find. It's it's just not possible. So there does have to be a push 
for social media companies, because as much as they weren't designed for it, the reality is that now they are some of the biggest purveyors of it, like news and media and just culture in on the planet. Even if they weren't designed for it, there has to be a requirement, a responsibility placed on them to act in the best interest of their users, not necessarily in the best interest of investors. Like there, there has to be that balance. Otherwise, a solution, a solution will never come. And I also want to like throw in here on a little tangent that a lot of content regulation is designed for English language users. And when you roll back content regulation, it affects, it has an outsized effect on non-English speaking users because the few content moderation tools that they had just kind of get trampled underfoot. But I would like to see a bigger push, not necessarily just by users, but also by regulators to kind of establish baseline content moderation requirements, baseline strategies for these companies to help their users, to facilitate their users having access to information that's trustworthy. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, these three outlets, we have deemed them trustworthy. We have a fact checker assigned to them. This is what you go with. It's a, it's content strategies that I don't want to say can necessarily be molded to a changing environment because that's always difficult. They should be moldable, but that allow users to more easily navigate this environment, to know that if they have questions about something, the tools to find the answers they're looking for are easily accessible and that they don't have to spend hours a day verifying everything they read online. And I think Twitter, as as problematic as that platform is, because it still has a long way to go, really tried to do that. And we saw some good examples of it during the COVID-19 pandemic, like flagging content that was questionable directing people to like sources like the CDC, that kind of strategy where you're kind of putting the ability of a user to verify in their face, I think is very useful. There's still work to be done, but I think that kind of thing, that's something that we should push to see more of. Yeah, I agree. Um, I got, I, I got a couple of thoughts uh, on, on, on what you said there. I think that, I mean, I, I guess I'll kind of go backwards starting with what you just said. I mean, uh, you know, however you feel about these uh, levels of content moderation, uh, you know, like uh, identifying uh, disinformation or misinformation, et cetera, uh, you know, it, the, the fact is that it's not censorship. Um, this is this is just a a way of moderating content. And it is a distinction that's important because. Uh, if it were censorship, then then it would just be struck off the platform. As it is, it's just kind of constrained. You can argue about like how that lives up to principles of free speech, and I think that that's an interesting ideological discussion to have. But um, I, I just want to say that like anybody who's thinking that that is like censorship, um, it, it's just it, it, it's just a misunderstanding of the term. Um, I, you know, I would also say that as somebody who started his career as a local reporter. Uh, you know, I, I think that I think what you're saying about local reporting is important, uh, but at the same time, uh, there are a lot of problems with local reporting, uh, and and you know, the, just the kind of realities of a local newsroom, especially in a moment of uh, financial crunch, 
so like, yes, like it's good to get information uh, from from local sources, but a lot of the same kind of fact checking issues uh, also exist there. Uh, sadly, um, I will say that, you know, one uh, just to give him a little plug, like one good exception to this uh, is Josh Landis. He is a reporter for the NPR station WAMC, which is based out of Albany, New York, serves my uh, old uh, home area of the Berkshires. And uh, he's outstanding. He's doing great work on policing right now. If you're on uh, Twitter or Facebook, go find him and read his stuff. Okay, that's my plug for Josh. Um, but you know, I like I think that I, I think that you're right that that these that there need to be uh, standards, and I think that they just need to be the kind of like agreed upon things, or like professional agreed upon things uh, that that everyone can say. Like you know, there there are certain standards of proof that we that we need to address and accept. And I think that uh, right-wing media, which is, you know, both where we started this conversation, I think like where, where we're going to kind of wrap is that, you know, right-wing media for years has been working to undermine that, to undermine confidence in, in, in reporting, but also to like, not, not follow those standards at all in the way that they do it, which then kind of, you know, like both of those things kind of had this kind of uh, snowball effect where, they just make it harder and harder and harder for people to verify things harder and harder for people uh, to be able to trust anything that they're hearing from anybody. And that is kind of like one of the goals. Like that is, you know, like that is what, you know, like there's a reason that like Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro have like their own news outlets, right? It's not because like they're committed to the news. Oh yeah. And I think it's absolutely intentional. I think undermining that, trust in sources that trust in the information like what's the quote like don't believe your lying eyes undermining that kind of trust is a form of political power and i think that's what gets missed in a lot of these conversations that it isn't just about who's censoring who or who's the who's doing the more free speech than the other it's very much about intentionally manipulating your audience into viewing anything that comes from a source that isn't you or a source that isn't approved by you as something that is untrue, not necessarily something that is incorrect or sorry, not incorrect, incorrect and untrue synonyms, not necessarily as something that would challenge their worldview or could fit into an, could fit into their own ideology. It's as something that they should simply not trust and reject on principle And I think that is a very intentional thing that has happened, not just on the right. It happens on the left as well. But again, that's why I also think you shouldn't be subscribing, like you shouldn't be subscribing to just one diet of news, one source of information. I think the best, it's a little bit of a cliche, but the best thing you can do is get your information, get your news from a lot of different places. I think that's the best thing people can do for themselves right now, because it's kind of the only real tool we have. Yeah, I think I think even even if you're getting news from somewhere that you know that you know that you like or that you're like you know uh, relatively confident, right? You're like, well, this place, you know, this is probably like bullshit. Like what you know what this person is telling me. Uh, like at least by paying attention to what they're saying, you know, you can learn to kind of identify uh, like those markers for misinformation, and and it's important to do that. I think because it's not. It's, it's not like a skill that is like so much like learned. 
it's just something that you kind of start absorbing because you, because you just like, you're surrounded by it so much. So then you're like, okay, uh, you know, now, now I'm starting to see like these terms over and over again. I'm starting to see like this kind of circular argument, you know, eventually you just kind of like pick it up. I mean, there is like, yeah, it is difficult and, and you have to like wade through a lot of bullshit to get there. Uh, but I, I completely agree with you that having a news diet that, you know, goes from, you know, in, like in my, in my case, it goes from like, you know, left to center, right. And, you know, so, like I try not to look too much at like the far right stuff, but that's, <laughs> you know, that's just mostly because, um, I, I find it not so interesting. Um, and, and I'm kind of more interested in critiquing like center and center right stuff, but, but I, yeah, but I agree with you. I think that, I think that it is important to get like as much different information as possible. Yeah. And as someone who watches a lot of the far right for a living and it's completely the, like on the opposite end of where I consider myself, it's useful, like you said, because it be, you become much better at identifying where a narrative is coming from. You can practically predict how a certain talking point or a narrative is going to shape up and move through an ecosystem. And in a way, I think exposing yourself a little to what's going on in those environments that you wouldn't interact with on a day-to-day basis of your own volition is a little bit of a good antidote to that misinformation. When that misinformation finally makes it to you, you can kind of start to tell where is this piece of news or information coming from? Why is it phrased in this way? Who is giving it to me? So I think exposure is a fantastic antidote, in my opinion. I wouldn't recommend too much because then you start to go a little a little weird. I have gone a little weird, but it helps. Yeah, you guys at Media Matters uh, look at a lot of a lot of pretty deranged stuff. Uh, but, uh, I can, I can imagine that that is probably a little difficult. Um, in, in the chat, uh, Mike says, is there another platform? The majority of those who may be leaving Twitter heading towards, uh, yeah, I mean, I've heard the people are going to Macedon, uh, which, uh, was a, you know, kind of this open source, uh, Twitter, kind of kind of knock off and i'm not saying that in like a negative way like just kind of like what it was built as um uh, the, it kind of popped up when when there was some uh other you know far right stuff going on on twitter uh you know um i mean macedon is fine uh i don't i don't think that it can really uh replace i think that what twitter really has going for it more than anything else is that uh everybody's already on it and so you know you, like you would have to have something that like you would have to have a, like a really huge rush of people, uh, you know, g- going to like another platform, like millions of people. I'm not talking like hundreds of thousands, like millions of people in order to make something like that viable in order to have it like have the same kind of influence. And if you're just like looking for like a, a, a different message board uh, that would have something, you know, that, that would be a more uh, welcoming and uh, peaceful place. I like, I completely understand that. And, and, and I completely understand like the, the impulse to, uh, to do that, but um, like a place like that is is probably not going to be able to drive the discourse in the same way that Twitter does, and also because uh, I think you know and this is something that we were talking about earlier. Um, there are just like millions, or there are the thousands of journalists and politicians uh, who are on Twitter, and that's where a lot of the discourse is kind of like comes out of, and so it's very difficult to 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 kind of find a replacement for it. Yeah, I would also add to that. 
a slight word of caution about a lot of these like alternative platforms, particularly Twitter alternatives. And I'll preface this by saying that my focus or the areas I've kind of looked into are places like Gab and Parler. When there's a big exodus of people from, for example, Twitter to one of those alternative platforms, it's often a self-selecting process. So for example, Gab and Parler, you had a lot of big kind of right-wing accounts that migrated over to those platforms, either kept a dual Twitter alternative platform presence or just switched completely. And oftentimes it just makes the bubble smaller and makes that like those lines of messaging that you were, that they were putting out before. It just reinforces them. It, it doesn't give them the same amplification as they would on say a Twitter where you have kind of just more competing narratives, but it narrows down the, kind of pool of information that's available to you and reinforces a lot of those kind of just beliefs, narratives, tropes that existed in kind of that like isolated community that chose to self-select and leave. So that's always like a little word of caution. If you're going to an alternative platform, it's a narrower information base and you should treat that with caution. Right. And, and again, like, 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 as you're saying, Nikki, like it, it depends on like what you want. Like, do you want to just go to a message board where people agree with you? Then yes, like one of these one of these uh, platforms is probably gonna be the right one, um, and and that's not to like that's that's not like an endorsement of Twitter as like somehow being like better, okay? That, that's just me saying that you know, uh, or and I'm not saying it's better or worse. I'm just saying that like that is just the reality. It just depends on what you want. But if you're going to like one of these like like as Nick, as Nikki is saying, if you're going to one of these uh, other platforms expecting it to be the same. The self-selection of people who are leaving is going to make it not the same. And so it is something to, to, to keep in mind. Um, but we've gone pretty over. Uh, Nikki, thank you so much uh, for joining. I really appreciate that you were able to uh, handle my audio issues earlier. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to edit a little bit of those out in, uh, in post. So if you're listening to this on replay, um, hopefully it won't be quite so bad. Uh, where can people find your work and, and what, what, uh, what are you uh, What are you working on right now? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Owen. It's always a pleasure to be on. Uh, people can find me on Twitter at, at Nikki MCR. Nikki is spelled N-I-K-K-I. And uh, my work at MediaMatters.org uh, under the author tag Nikki McCann-Ramirez. Great. All right. And, yeah, so if you're listening to this on replay uh, on the Colin app, uh, please be sure to subscribe so that you can continue to uh, be notified when we go live. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please uh, subscribe, follow, rate, etc. Do all that stuff. And consider getting the call-in app so you guys can listen to this live and join the conversation. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll be back next week. Nikki, thanks again. Uh, we'll have to have you on for, for, for yet another appearance to talk about this stuff for sure. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, everyone, for listening. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.